Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. I am so excited today to welcome a fantastic guest and also in a very important person in my life and friend, Dr. Laron Nelson. He is the Associate Dean for Global Health and Equity at the Yale School of Nursing, the Ontario HIV Network Treatment Network Chair, and he has so many other titles that I'll ask him to introduce right now. So thank you so much. And one thing I want to ask you, Laron, before we really get started, is I'm trying to remember when I first met you. I think it was in 2010 at least, because I have a very fond memory of us sitting at a big old table in a library writing grants together, but I can't remember how we met. So anyways, if you could please introduce to the listeners all of your illustrious titles, and then also if you remember how we met. Sure. Uh, Thank you for the invitation to be a part of this podcast. Uh, my name is Laurent Nelson, uh, and as you mentioned, I am the Associate Dean for Global Health and Equity at Yale School of Nursing. I'm also the Independence Foundation Professor and the Associate and Associate Professor of Nursing uh, at Yale. Uh, I do research around the world, as you know, but one of my sites is in Toronto, Ontario, uh, and there uh, I am a scientist and the Ontario HIV Treatment Network uh, Chair and implementation science with black communities uh, that work focuses on HIV and that is based in the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions at St. Michael's Hospital uh, in downtown Toronto. I remember that time together in the library, but I have to say, I, I cannot exactly remember how we met. It just felt like we just happened, we come to know each other over time, but that was a, uh, a very important memory uh, that we share because I do remember very vividly of writing my, the first grant I ever got awarded when I was faculty at University of Toronto. It was out of that session we had together in that library. Uh, so, And we yeah. both got awarded the Grand Challenges Canada Rising Star and Global Health Award and we were writing for the same competition. So that was, it's such a lovely memory I have. So my first question to you isn't really a question. It's just another form of getting to know you. If I'm sitting in an elevator, standing in an elevator with you, we're going up like three floors. And I said, so what do you do, Laron? What would you tell me? Your elevator pitch. Oh, the pitch. Okay, so that's a different question. I might say something different in the pitch. Okay, tell me both. Ask what I would do. If someone asks what I do, I would probably say I'm a teacher and a scientist. 
and uh, I work with uh, healthcare professionals, mostly nurses, uh, and training them in how to be, you know, professional clinicians and how to generate and use evidence in their practice to improve health. That, that's that's what I would say. What I do, uh, my pitch would probably be, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to understand from a scientific perspective uh, how to implement uh, evidence-based innovations to improve uh, healthcare in communities around the world. My, it, my focus is really on communities of people of African descent, uh, as well as marginalized subpopulations within those communities, such as uh, LGBT communities, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Thank you. If it, was a, if it was a fast moving elevator, that's what I would say. <laughs> uh, thank you. My next fantasy is I'm going to rock up to your house right now with a time machine. There's space for two people. You're going to take me back to the time because I know you have one of the most interesting lives I've ever heard about. You're going to take me back to the time when you thought, I think I'm going to start studying stigma. Where would we go on this time machine? I think we'd be back in the 80s, uh, sort of as a, a prequel to the stigma <laughs> work, where, you know, my, I remember being about 12 years old and my, my mother was in tears and she was calling me on. There was a lot of commotion. They called me and my sister out of school. And it was because my grandfather was dying. He was in New Jersey. We were in Georgia. And I remember my mom's, my dad said, oh, your, your mother's dad is in the hospital. He's dying. And I thought, that's weird because my, I went to my grandfather's funeral. I went to my grandmother's husband's funeral. I assumed that was, that guy is my granddaddy. That must be my mother's father. And so, well, apparently, no, <laughs> that was not her birth father. Her birth father was a man who was what they would call then, what maybe call now a drag queen who was living in New Jersey. And he was dying in the hospital of what we didn't know at the time was AIDS. But we knew a lot of gay people were getting it. Uh, and he had gotten it. And we knew, I didn't know at the time, but my family knew it, that uh, he was gay identified. And at the time, I kind of knew I was gay too. And I remember being stunned at how could this be? How could I not known this person for the 12 years of my life? This is my mm. mother's father. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me in those conversations that the reason he had been banned was because he was gay. <laughs> and... Uh, and the conversation around what it meant to go to his funeral, because what did it mean that he had this disease? Because of course he has this disease because he's doing this sinful thing. I mean, I was hearing, I was 12. Wow. And I didn't know what stigma was at the time, but I certainly understood the social ramifications of his identity as a gay person, uh, coupled with the fact that he had this illness uh, and what those two met together, like my the way my family discussed it was not as two parallel issues. It was one one issue, mm -hmm. <laughs> this gay guy with this disease, because they went hand in hand as far as they could concern. And honestly, I think I kept that down 
you know, it was a striking memory in my head. I remember the conversation, the event. And I remember being in nursing school and being driven to be working in these areas that my faculty would say, oh, don't you want to work in pediatrics? You're so friendly and nice. The moms would really like you if you went to the maternity unit. I I wanted to work in the jails, the jail Mm -hmm. clinics, and I wanted the HIV clinics. And and they could never understand why. And I could never understand why. But uh, as I talked to somebody who was helping me sort of thread through why my interests were where they were, there was something about stigma that was threaded through them, that this, this, my interest in working with populations who were socially marginalized and the impact that that was having on their health outcomes beyond the physiological elements of the illness. And I think I traced that back to that experience that I had as a child, not knowing what stigma was, but seeing how powerful it was and what it meant for what that mm-hmm. man experience was going to be in the hospital as he lay dying. Did you meet him? Were you able to meet him? I never had a chance to meet him, no. Did you go to the funeral? We went to the funeral. But at the time, children were not allowed on those units. So my family, his, my parents, his children got to see him, but the grandchildren were not allowed. So I only saw him at the funeral. It's interesting that, that you trace your stigma roots you know for this research we do today uh to somebody living with hiv back back in time because that's also how i got interested in doing stigma research was volunteering on the aids floor it was called then in 1994 at the wellesley hospital so that's how i and i saw all these people dying alone their family wasn't coming, their friends weren't coming. And sometimes as the volunteers, we were the only person they saw. And a lot of it was because they were uh, gay men at the time in the early 90s and their families had abandoned them because they were gay and then their friends sort of abandoned them because they had HIV. So it's, that's interesting. I did not know that about you. Well, well, there's a second part to that question too, which is, related to the research component, it really was actually talking to you. I don't know if you remember this, but it was when I started to, it was right after we got those grants to do work uh, through Gan Challenges Canada and I had done work in Ghana. And it was not focused on stigma, it was focused on understanding, you know, the structure and function of these social networks of these men. And I had a conversation with you about it and you would, as I was talking, you would say, that stigma, man. That stigma. <laughs> so, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> you you got to study it. You got you to gotta look at that. And I hadn't looked at it at that point. Uh, and so it really helped me think, yes, we should. this is important. It's not secondary. It's central. We should be looking at it. So. And, yes. and I'm going to give you a chance to plug your, your research and all of your fantastic accomplishments but I just want to highlight now that you've had a consistent program of research in Ghana for almost a decade, and you have a really big grant right now that I'm honored to be part of, continuing this work on stigma, but growing it. It's it's actually so wonderful to see that, that you're sort of expanding and, and you're being so successful. It's great. Thank you. It, it, it has been uh, very 
rewarding to have spent, you know, many years, you know, it's been just about a decade now. We started in 2009 uh, with our community partners in Ghana and really ha having a research program be focused on what they are saying is important and trying things that seem impossible, maybe illogical in terms of wanting to do multi-level work, work with clinics and MSM within the context of government-led facilities. And people would say, you can't do this. And maybe it's, maybe we can't <laughs> do it, but it's never stopped us from trying. And uh, uh, so I've, I've enjoyed it. It's not been easy work, but it's been meaningful. I'm so excited to see where, where, where we're going to go next. So one of the questions that I'm asking everybody on this podcast is, who cares? Why should we care about stigma? Like, really? There's all these other things going on in the world, like COVID-19 right now, like everything else. Why stigma? Why, why does it matter? Yeah, it's a very serious question. The... You know, it matters for a number of reasons, but I will maybe zero in on at least two of them uh, is because, you know, stigma, and I know Valerie was one of the guests, uh, she's a, a heavyweight in this field, but stigma is not just not nice, you know, it's harmful, it is it's stressful. And, you know, as a nurse, we are concerned with the mechanisms by which these social processes like stigma actually have a direct physiological impact on the human body. It, it, it accelerates disease progression. It makes recovery from illness much more difficult. It has traumatic psychological impacts. It is hurting people. It is killing people. It's not just, you know, banter and, and silly talk that people can just should just get over it. It literally is is violent, and uh, that's why it's important. Because if we don't address it, we will continue to see people who die from illnesses they shouldn't die from, who die earlier than they were intended to, because of the way that stigma puts stress on both their physical body uh, and also uh, their mental health. So that that and and I think that is central. And I think people are starting to see that, you know, there's a there's a an example of a person in Ghana in one of the studies who we were doing a study that looked at the way that stigma impacted on HIV outcomes. We were collecting things like viral load and symptom frequency and symptom distress. And then the the, the research assistant sent me a note from Ghana saying. We have a participant and we, you have to see the viral load. The viral load is extremely high. And the symptom clusters were troubling. Were, they had all the things you wouldn't want to see at the same time and a high viral load. And so we said, okay, well, we have a protocol. We should incur facilitate the person seeing their uh, physician or being linked to care. But the person refused. And we was, they were like, we don't understand. This person is refusing to go to care. And I remember they felt like I had to get on the phone to talk to the participant who wouldn't talk to a nurse in country, who wouldn't talk to the physician, or who was participating in the study, but wouldn't go for care. So, so I talked to him and he was recalling the time he got diagnosed 
and the treatment he got when he was diagnosed and the first time he went for treatment for care and the way he was, the stigma he experienced in getting care. And he said he would rather die than experience that again. Wow. He, he even talked about when he thought about it, the things that happened in his body, the trembling, the nervousness. He, he, was, he could relive those experiences. And he said he, he, he could not risk going there again and having it happen. The memory of it was too much. And he was content. He had rather died, right? As his body was failing him, every incentive, every physiological incentive in the world to go into care, yeah. the stigma was even more powerful than those. Wow. And he said, I won't do it. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't, I, I couldn't tell him that this medical aspect of it was more important than his experience of the stigma. I, I wanted to say anything I could to get him to go in, but it just made me realize the way that stigma was going to be responsible, it was, was contributing to this person's suffering and maybe responsible for his death. And it, it just solidified for me that it's not, it's not trivial. It is very serious. Thank you so much. I really like how you highlighted that it has these stress, physical impacts, but also mental health impacts, but then it actually prevents you from getting care. I think that is so powerful. So then that really leads to the next question I have, which is, so what does stigma look like? So what is this person experiencing either in Ghana or in the U.S. where you are now or Canada where you also work? Obviously, I, I'm asking you to do an anonymous version or, you know, just a, a broad sweeping overview of what, so what is happening that is so bad that somebody would rather die than go to care, for instance, or just avoid care or, or just feel terrible? What, what, what yeah. sort of, yeah. And I know you do a lot of important work on the intersection of uh, racism and LGBT stigma and HIV stigma. So it's hard probably to pick one example, but just, just so to give the examples. audience. I, I, you know, I would say, you know, for example, um, someone who came into a healthcare facility for, uh, let's say, testing for HIV. And then the person, the nurse or the physician or the counselor, like wanting to know uh, the root of infection. How'd you? What were you doing? How'd you get this? Right? <laughs> Did you get it in a in a godly way, as if that's possible, <laughs> or <laughs> or an ungodly way? Like, did you have? Are you doing something with men you should be doing? And having to deal with. So let's say the person is diagnosed. So having to do with the stress of with the HIV, with HIV, let's say it is HIV, uh, but also having to deal with the stress of being penalized for your sexual desires, um, or and um, and then having to uh, disclose or or not even to disclose, but the pressure on how to withhold your private information from someone who has power over you, who's pushing you to, to divulge it in terms of your same-sex behavioral practices. Uh, that's challenging. So let's think about in a context of Canada uh, with somebody who may be living with HIV 
who may be asking questions about their sexual behavior, right? In the context in which Black people are uh, highly criminalized around their health status, if they're with HIV, and being in situations where they're being monitored or surveilled or asking very specific questions about their sexual behavior in a, in a way that stigmatizes their sexuality, that polices it, that makes people ashamed uh, uh, of what they do uh, in the context of managing their health, that makes or that makes them uh, ashamed to do to exercise their sexuality or fearful to do it because of the stigma they experience around what it might mean if you're being the person with HIV who dares to have to want to ex ex express your sexuality and uh, and the the guidance right that people might get around. Well, you know what could happen if you do this, right? The person could, you know, the legal implications of it, like all of that is stigma. And the impact of that is not just making a decision about do I do something or not? It mm -hmm. is very, uh, it is a very complex uh, mix of effect around how people understand how they can live their lives. Now, what restrictions are placed on that? Um, what, what, what is what uh, liability they may expose themselves to uh, if they do because of the, because of what they heard from the, the provider or counselor and what it means for them to have to withhold these natural human uh, desires uh, and have to deal with that every day all day uh, is I can't I mean I can't imagine to some degree but I just think about having to live under that weight unrelenting constantly mm. and I even worry about how we how we help people come back from that and that's some of what we are we're trying to think about in some of the therapies we want to uh you know do some implementation science work on but I mean those are just a couple of examples of the way that stigma shows up and in some ways that I think the people who who practice these stigmatizing behaviors not even sure they're aware I'm, like, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure like they get the way in which they exert these power uh, in, on people and the actual impact that it, it has on them. Uh, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm a nurse. Most nurses are in this field because they want to be helpful. Mm -hmm. They want healers and they want people to, to live full optimal lives. But then some of the things I just described, nurses also do those things. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, that's part of the, the, the importance of the multi-level work is working with the people who are, who are sometimes the perpetrators of the stigma to understand uh, their practices and how to modify them or transform them so that they not only are not creating stigmatizing environments, but they can create, create environments that are affirming and that might be able to dismantle or unravel or reverse, I'm not sure the right mm -hmm. language here, uh, the effects of stigma that people may have gotten for years, you know, coming to their practices. So some of these things, thank you so much. Because some of the things you just mentioned, we all are surrounded by and might not be aware of. So for example, in Canada, for the listeners, uh, there's criminalization of HIV non-disclosure in very complex ways. So people living with HIV can be charged uh, criminally for not disclosing their status um, in, in many different ways. And so that's, that's a way that the law actually 
produces and reproduces stigma. And also, around what you were mentioning, is this age-old blaming of somebody for getting sick. So, Mm -hmm. oh, you must have done something wrong, Mm -hmm. you know? So that has actually been going on for centuries where we want to separate ourselves from somebody who is sick. So we want to separate people who are good from people who are quote unquote, not good people who are healthy from people who are quote unquote unhealthy. And so when, when, when we see that there's still since, you know, I guess it's been 40 years now of since HIV sort of emerged, we're still blaming people 40 years on and questioning people and so people are feeling ashamed so i think you really yeah go go i just say you really see that it's still now 40 years on right and look look at this current situation with this covid19 pandemic so we're starting to see disparities by you know race and so you already hear people saying what are the black people doing that they're getting COVID more and that they're dying from it more, right? Like the, the, the stigma is already being produced when in fact, this is a result of a system that has put, placed mm-hmm. people uh, at different levels of vulnerability, right? That has nothing necessarily to do with an individual's behavior. Uh, so to your point, the, the system and the way that it has created, structured for these inequities to occur have always been here. They've been around. And maybe people have not noticed or paid attention to it because it is we have not had a recent uh, disease outbreak that could expose it on such a mass scale. So we could always chalk it off to this one person might have done this or heard about this isolated incident. Mm-hmm. But we can see it is not an isolated incident, right? Mm-hmm. And the system has, has disproportionately uh, created situations where black and brown people will systematically have... Uh, greater rates of infection, not because you do anything differently from anybody else, but mm-hmm. because uh, they are placed within categories that through which access um, is distributed and preferences are distributed. That will mean they will have poor outcomes in somebody whose skin color affords them more access and preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. And because there's no other way to explain it. Uh, but, I, but, but the point is, Stigma is also being produced in a way to try to uh, absolve the system of its responsibility for what's happening and what we're seeing here in front of our eyes. Absolutely. And we know that there's racism when it comes to the education system, the employment system, the healthcare system, which leads to greater proportions of people of color experiencing low income and poverty and with that comes less access to physical distancing, for example, needing to ride public transit, needing to work essential jobs, which may not be very well paid. Um, and so we see those are the limited health insurance, for example, in the US uh, that comes along with people living in po- poverty or doing jobs that are precarious. So those are some of the structural factors. It's not that people are, are fundamentally doing something different. It's that they're actually just living in a world that has less opportunities and more barriers to health. I use the term <laughs> practice stigma because I do think maybe not everybody is fully aware of it, but I do think there is some practicing of stigma as a deliberate strategy that goes on 
Because even as you were describing people who are considered now essential workforce, who are in occupations that are low wage and in many ways precarious, and thinking about the ways that the, those folks who are now heralded as heroes, mm-hmm. right? Three months ago, that's not how we talked about them, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Or how society viewed them, right? Those were stigmatizing jobs that people took because they may have been blocked from taking other jobs. Some do it because they enjoy that work but but it, it was a job that is within a particular sort of social economic class that has been stigmatized and mm-hmm. the people who are now celebrating those jobs I think we have to understand that so what were we doing before right mm-hmm. and we can see the ways in which we could transform stigma and when we recognize the, the shared value in our humanities and how we're all contributing to this and how important those people and their work are to your survival so that so that we see at least temporarily a transformation from stigma to affirmation, but I think I I always want to call out. It's great to be affirming right now, but what were you doing in December and November? Yes. And understand why you're doing this differently. And so hopefully that translates post pandemic. Uh, I don't know that it will, but I, I think it's an important observation to be very clear about and to raise. That is my last question. Well, I have a few wild cards after that, really brief. But my last question is, what can we do about stigma? And I feel like you just started answering it by saying, uh, understanding our common humanity, that the sanitation worker who may be stigmatized for uh, the occupation is now and has always been essential for our survival. And now that a lot of people are able to work at home, but a lot of people have lost their posi- like their, their employment completely. Uh, so I guess what can we do about stigma now? We made it seem rightfully so to be all encompassing and in the air we breathe. So how can we, how can we distill it to some action or approach or understanding that the listener could leave feeling hopeful that they could do something because it does seem so big, right? When we're talking about structural violence and inequities. It does. It seems big, but I think that I believe we need structural changes. I mean, it's hard. That feels big, but I think this, if, if anything we can see now that these changes are not impossible they can happen when we want them to happen. And some of them are happening because powerful people who are affected by this said, okay, let's do it. It could have been done 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. So, so we, we can no longer hide from the fact that we can make anything happen if we want it to happen. And uh, that is a way that I think we can have a society that is more, more just. I think stigma is a manifestation of social group power against uh, other groups. Uh, a way to a way to address it is to dismantle the power structures and make sure power is more evenly distributed. But that's what allows stigma to thrive is because socially a group can can claim a particular source, uh, power that allows them to treat you in a way and for you to experience it in a certain way. Uh, it it rarely works in the reverse that people who don't have power <laughs> can create sense of stigma among powerful people who can literally destroy them or make their lives miserable or uh, keep them out of a job or whatever it, it may be. 
So I do think structure will change. I think there needs to be much more advocacy work, uh, people in academic sector or scientists, folks who are working in uh, public health practice and social service practice need to work together to say the system is a problem. The system allows these things mm -hmm. to happen. And to the degree that we can push serious changes in how society is structured, I think will go a long way in helping stigma. Uh, but, it, but it has to be structural because mm -hmm. I believe that, he, I want to believe that humans will come through this recognizing their folly and saying, you know, we have to live together differently. But I think once we get through this pandemic, people will go to reclaim their power. And I think we have to <sighs> yeah. try to prevent that from happening. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so that's what I can offer. I mean, we are, that's the focus of the research that I'm leading and people like you and others are leading is to try to understand what can be done but I think at least in a short term analysis on the flight analysis, based on what's happening now, I think it's an opportunity to make a lot of things happen because people who were, who, who were genuinely saying, I'm not sure we could do that, right? I'm not sure we could basic income. I don't know. Is that possible? That doesn't seem possible. Well, guess what? It's possible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the United States, under Donald J. Trump as president... Yeah, uh, it's not a basic income, but it was possible to supplement income for almost every person in the United States. It's possible. Yeah, uh, <laughs> things about like telecommuting, you know, which you know I like being in the office or being around people for the purposes of work, but the idea that it is not possible to handle to to accommodate ways that pe to to support people's ability to contribute to the workforce. Uh, that the whole everything would just fall apart. Well, it didn't fall apart, <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't. So I think, and, and so I'm thinking about the people who could, who if they had the opportunities to, to have remote work locations, that they could, they could generate income and do other things that could mitigate things like stigma around class and poverty and ability. And we we know we can do those things. So it's not a question anymore of uh, uh, capacity is a question of will mm. and the, the willingness is about what people's recognition that it will mean that they will have to give up some they will have to share more power than they may be willing to mm -hmm. thank you so I'm doing this fun thing at the end three quick wildcard questions one what is your favorite thing on Netflix or your favorite movie that you're watching right now Oh man, my favorite movie. Uh, I've been watching uh, re reruns of Mother in Law. I don't know why that movie brings. I haven't me seen that. that. Who is in that? <laughs> it's Jane Fonda and Jennifer Lopez, are the, and Matthew McConaughey are the main characters. Oh, so maybe it's kind of a funny, feel-good movie, but it it sort of helped me. Great. I'm looking for funny, feel-good movies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little, it's dramatic, but it's funny. <laughs> okay, we're going to watch that today. Um, second, if you could have dinner with anyone living or not living anywhere, 
Who would you pick and where would you take them? Uh, I'd take my mom for dinner in Paris. Ooh. Yes. And is there a place in Paris or just like anywhere? Oh, you know. I don't know Paris at all, so I'm just asking. I don't don't know the name of a restaurant (laughs) that comes to mind. But she's always wanted to have dinner. She always said she wanted to go to Paris. And I never could understand why. But as a child, she would always tell people, one day I'm going to Paris and I want to have dinner in Paris. And I remember as a kid, anyway, (laughs) but now it may be possible uh, her health is not, you know, 100%. So uh, I don't know how much she can stand a flight to, you know, Paris. But if I post, could, I would. Post-pandemic. I, you could take her. Say again? You could take your mom post-pandemic. Yes, I'll see what she, if she's up to it. But I would love to take her. She's not into all that traveling stuff now anymore. I think she likes okay. to be home. She doesn't like new things. and Yeah. You know. But uh, I would love to do that for her. If you do that, can you take a selfie and send it to me? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the final um, wild card is, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. I've gotten a lot of good advice. Or just one good piece of advice, because yeah, I know it's hard to say, this is the best one. Uh, there was a, there is a person, uh, Patricia Corey Doniger, she was my first manager when I became a nurse. And she's given me a lot of advice over the years. I think the one piece of advice that she gave me, I was always trying to fit in. And she was saying, so I was doing little things that she was noticing as a brand new nurse to try to kind of be like everybody else, try not to stand out so much. People always talk about you know, I would, I would get a lot of accomplishments. Like, since I was a kid, like certificates, every time I went to school, I'd come home with something. And I was, I didn't like it because I felt like, I don't know, mm-hmm. it, it made me uncomfortable being, and so being an overachiever. And I used to, it was sort of uh, something you would say that wasn't, uh, it wasn't positive, although it sounds positive. But it's, it's not <laughs> positive with your peers. <laughs> right. And so I was, so she, I'm I'm finished college. I'm a nurse and she's noticing this. And she said, you know what? You're a giraffe. And I said, what? Wow. You you have to accept that you are a giraffe. And you might like being around the zebras and the lions and the tigers or whatever. And everybody's cool. But you you are a giraffe. You will have to accept that you you are different, that you will stand out not because you're trying to, but because of who you are, much of what you do will always stand out. People will always notice it. And you can't, you can't be ashamed of that. You can't shy away from it. And it was, it was so life-changing, right? To, to wow. be able to hear somebody observe that, to, to observe my struggle that I'd never even voiced to a person, but for someone to notice and said, you, you'll do a lot better in this life if you accept who you are. Wow, that's so yeah. beautiful. And I yeah. love giraffes. Like, I love <laughs> them so much. I have, in my, I, have, I have these giraffes that I have carved around my house uh, just as a reminder because it, it was so important for her to have sort of said that to me, that tip, that advice. That's so beautiful. Uh, I want to say one day 
I would love to go with you to the giraffe sanctuary in Kenya. It's on my bucket list. Oh, wow. Have you seen pictures? Me neither. There's pictures of this house where it's a sanctuary, but the giraffes come and put their heads in the windows. (laughs) And you can can eat there. And (laughs) as you're eating, they come and they put their faces near you. Really. So one day, well, we'll do a a further podcast if that ever happens and talk about drafts and and stigma. Uh, But I just want to say I greatly appreciate your time. Where can – I'm going to be providing a little bio with a link to your website. Is there anything you'd like to tell the listeners about where they can find you or I can, you know, just have a a link or unless there's some, you know – special social media that you want to tell people about? I don't have any special social media. Uh, we do have a uh, website. I would I would say if uh, people are interested, if they could just uh, do an internet search for Laron Nelson, L-A-R-O-N, any L-S-O-N, uh, that uh, much of my relevant work will come up. And uh, when our site is uh, active and deployed, any one of those links you click, I think will take you to the site to find out more about what we're doing. Great. I'll include all the links so you can find out more about Dr. Ron Nelson. Thank you again. Very honored to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.